What's up, everyone? Welcome to Working Man's Pod. Before we get into the good stuff, a quick note. You'll notice that my audio quality is just a bit less crisp than it normally is on this episode. That's due to a recording and production issue. It's a one-time thing. Next episode, will be back to the normal audio quality that you have come to expect from us. For this one, we tried to smooth it all out during post-production as much as we could. Hopefully, I did a good enough job that it won't be jarring for you. It, it wasn't for me when I was listening to this episode um, during the editing process. But anyways, needless to say, next up, we will be back to normal. So in the meantime, enjoy this episode and uh, let's play some deal. Good morning, afternoon, evening, good whenever you're popping this on. We've been doing this for a little over a year now. Working Man's Pod is a little over a year old. So if you're new, welcome. If you haven't joined us in a while and you forgot how this works, you press play. The sweet sound of deal washes over you. Alex and I welcome you. We talk about ourselves for a couple minutes in the days between. Then we get on with the show, and the show we're talking about today is Friday, July 13th, 1984. Ooh, 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 yeah. Um, let's jump on in to the days between. There were days, there were days, What do you have from the days between? It's been less time than the last time we talked, but it has, um, it has been at least a couple weeks. I've got one big thing, and it's kind of the it's like a big overarching theme for us. We're trying to get Dave Lemieux on the show. Mm. That's a first and foremost. Should have should have let off with that in the <laughs> intro. Um, and Dave Lemieux has liked a second Working Man's Pod tweet. In the last two weeks so i mean he's locked in yeah we're getting there the only thing we don't have is a commitment yeah which is kind of important but we we need to figure out what date is 36 days ahead of the march 26th anniversary of his show it's got to be coming up it's probably next week and then on that a lot sooner than we think yeah yeah, on that 36 day pre-anniversary we reach back out dave's picks volume 36 36 years since your first show, 36 days until the anniversary. Got to make our second request for you to come on the show. And hopefully he <laughs> responds. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, that's, yeah, that is uh, obviously top of mind right now as we continue to work on pinning Mr. Lemieux down for, uh, for an interview. That, yeah, that's a good one. Days between, for me, unfortunately not the headiest time in my life although uh one of the wordles very recently was heady and so i had i hadn't played wordle in a very long time and and it was heady so wow yeah destiny it was so that was an exciting little heady moment in the days between probably the most exciting one though was that bob weir and the wolf bros played a long i think four nights at the capitol theater in port chester new york 
the last night was just like stacked with guests. It was extremely chaotic. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. There was a moment where it was Bob and the whole band. So, you know, the wolf pack on the horns. You have Jay Lane on drums. Don was on stand-up bass. And then um, I'm totally blanking on the guy's name who plays uh, pedal steel guitar. He's great. Um, and so apologies to him. And then Rick and Peter were on stage from Goose. And so Rick was playing guitar. Bob was playing guitar. Pedal steel guitar. Peter's playing piano. Kementi's playing piano. There was a lot. There's just a lot of sound um, all happening at once. But it was it was pretty cool. And it's just, it's really cool to me that these Goose guys, especially Rick, is just playing with everyone. Getting a lot of guest stars with a lot of big names. It's really, Which really cool. Them. Yeah, it's 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 really awesome. Like um, there was also one of the nights Bob brought out um, Michaela Davis to play harp. She she's great. If you've ever seen Bob's Tiny Desk concert on YouTube, she plays harp on that and is really wonderful. And um, but yeah, Rick he played the shows that I saw at the Cap with Phil. And then they did the whole tour with Trey. Then they um, brought out Billy Strings one of those nights on that tour. Then he played more shows with Phil and then uh, played with Dead & Co. at, um, or at, excuse me, he didn't play with Dead & Co. They brought Bob out, Goose did, um, during the Goose set of Playing in the Sand. Then he went back out with Phil for another couple nights and now he's playing with Bob again. It's just really, it's it's pretty cool and I also have to appreciate that he is respecting his elder statesmen and going out there and taking the opportunity to play with these guys. It's probably no different for him than it is from us for us in the sense of when we go to see these guys, it's like, this might be the last time, you know? And so for him, it's like, I don't know how much longer I'm going to have a chance to learn some musical knowledge, whether about playing or touring or listening or whatever from these legends who've been doing it for so long. So Shout out to them. Um, whether you like Goose or not, it's just cool to see other musicians collaborating with our guys. So that was that was very cool. And now I'm, I'm really excited that we're only a couple months, I think two months away from the first night of the Dead & Co. tour. Yeah, it's going to come quick. It's going to be fun. That it is. Well, on that note, should we get on with the show? Let's get on with the show. little different this time because you got slammed at work so instead of me sitting back and you educating me let me educate you about july 13th 1984 at the greek theater at the university of california berkeley please do july 13th is a really famous day in music but it would be famous for what happened a year later in 1985 the famous live aid concert would be held um, and broadcast simultaneously out of uh, England and uh, Philadelphia in the U.S. That show is like really, really famous for just stacked performances from the first Led Zeppelin, Zeppelin reunion since Bonham's death, uh, U2, David Bowie, bunch of big names. But I think Queen, the right? show that it's most famous for is the Queen set and the Queen show, um, which yeah. I think is what really elevated that to the stratosphere what is going on in 1984 
In July 1984, the top song is When Doves Cry by Prince. Yeah. Um, And that would also be the top song of the year, which makes sense. That song's song's got some power. The last time we talked about the 80s, we talked about 1981. And I think our conversation about the music at that time could have been boiled down to the phrase, um, all sizzle, no substance. Let's walk (laughs) that back, because 1984's got some substance. I'm going to just read off some pop or rock songs with staying power that were in the Billboard Top 40 from the year 1984. When Doves Cry was number one. What's Love Got to Do With It by Tina Turner, number two. Her huge comeback hit. Yeah. Yes. Footloose by Kenny Loggins at four. Jump by Van Halen at six. Let's pause there. So I just recently watched the music video to Jump for Mm -hmm. maybe the first time, I think. I don't think I've ever seen it. Um, You should check it out because... Van Halen is a very funny band to watch in hindsight. That video, they are hamming it up so hard, but it made me laugh because I I know like, I guess three quarters of the Van Halen lineup quite well. Um, David Lee Roth, Alex Nettie Van Halen. The other guy, I have no idea who he is. And <laughs> during the entire music video, it's like David Lee Roth, like trying to basically elbow his way into every clip, like every frame of the music video, he's trying to get in there. Eddie, Eddie Van Halen is soloing his ass off and, and uh, <laughs> Roth is like, you know, trying to get in there. And then it goes to like a clip of the drumming and he's like walking around the drum set. But then the bassist just looks like a random dad who just like showed up and got to be a part of the band. And it was cracking me up. They're all wearing these like kind of new wavy, weird not weird just like new wavy kind of fashionable of the time clothes and he's wearing like jeans and like tall white sneakers and just like a dad ass shirt so if you haven't watched the jump music video in a while go check it out and see if you're as amused by it as i am because yeah it was it was really cracking me up i was watching it like literally four days ago the basis for van halen is michael anthony um well, with a and name like that, how is, could I have forgotten him? <laughs> I think what you said is accurate. He just looks like a dad who got lost and found himself in the Van Halen music <laughs> yeah. video. Yeah. <laughs> um, other big songs after Jump, Owner of a Lonely Heart by Yes at number eight. Karma Chameleon at number 10. Girls Just Want to Have Fun at 15. Sunglasses at Night by Corey Hart at 36. And Uptown Girl by Billy Joel at 39. So... Apologies to the 80s from our last episode. We take oh, it back. Oh, the 80s are great. 81 is just trash. <laughs> 81 is just the music world is at a crossroads. They just it didn't know what it wanted to do with itself, I think. Yeah. By 84, it had, it had figured it out. The 80s had declared itself by then, yeah. This week, when Doves Cries in week two of a five-week one at five week run at number one and dancing in the dark by bruce is the number two song in the land okay um movies the big summer blockbuster of 1984 who you gonna call alex ghostbusters ghostbusters in week six of its seven week run at number one and an eight of nine week run at the box office number one good year for movies in 84 ghostbusters at one Indiana Jones 2, The Temple of Doom at number two. Gremlins at three, which I thought was high for (laughs) Gremlins, especially considering what's at number four. Um, Karate Kid. Mm. 
Yeah, I would have thought that that would have outpaced Gremlins, but who knew? Yeah, there was. I saw someone who's who was writing, you know, about culture and what the Super Bowl tells us about culture, and it was saying that two of the biggest movies in 1989 were Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade, and whatever this other movie is that I'm completely blanking on. And it was like, if you would have told me in, maybe it was Mission Impossible? I don't know. But it was like, if you would have told me in 1989 and you'd asked like, fast forward to 2023, what are going to be the big movies that are being advertised on Super Bowl Sunday? And I was like, well, Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones and Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt in Mission Impossible again. (laughs) I would have been like, no, there's just no way. But here we are. So a little yeah. Indiana Jones connection with what's going on in the current world, because that'll be releasing around July 13th of this year, um, just 40 years, 39 years after after the first. And speaking of Harrison Ford, <laughs> birthdays on July 13th, none wow. other than Harrison Ford himself. Han Solo himself, wow. Yes. In addition to Patrick Stewart, Ken Jong, Yadier Molina, Cody Bellinger, Mitch Rowland, who is the touring guitarist for Harry Styles, and I, who's, I think it's fair to say, probably the biggest pop star um, going on right now in 2023. And Tom Kenny, a voice actor and the voice of SpongeBob SquarePants. Wow, okay. Born on July 13th. Sad deaths on July 13th. Frida Kahlo, the Mexican painter, died in uh-huh. 1954. Kate Shepard, who is the most famous New Zealand suffragette and women's activist. Um, as of 1991, she's on their $10 bill. This is like a really cheap comparison, but she's the New Zealand equivalent of the United States's Susan B. Anthony. And George Steinbrenner, the boss, passed away on July 13th, 2010. The boss. The boss, yes. But in, in 84, alive and kicking are Phil, Bob, Jerry, Mickey, Billy, and Brent on the keys. It's the classic 80s dead lineup you know and love. You missed a member, though. Cocaine. Cocaine is a (laughs) crucial member of this band in 1984, and if you need more evidence of that, go listen to this weekend of shows (laughs) from the Greek theater, because I would argue a more important member of the band than um, maybe Mickey, honestly, at this point in time. Uh, yeah, and the tempos are quick. We'll talk about it in a sec. Um, but yeah, cocaine is alive and well. Um, and maybe it fueled their 64 shows that they played in 1984. 63 in the U.S. and one in Canada. This tour in July, mid-July of 84, this is their third wave of tours they had a spring tour where they went from west to east in april and then it's not fair to call this one their summer tour because they had a summer tour in june and july where they went west to east and back into the midwest ending with a two-night run in wisconsin on july 6th and 7th they took a week off and then they went back on a second summer tour where they went west to east again um, so this is the first of a three night stand at the Greek theater in the Berkeley to kick off that summer tour two in 1984. 1984 is a year that has almost zero official coverage air quotes official only two official releases from 84, the 30 trips around the sun show from October 12th, 1984. 
and then it took a while, but Dave's Picks Volume 35, so quite recently, um, from April 19th and 20th, 1984. That's it. So there's almost no live coverage out of 84. It's interesting, too, because when you read about 84 on like the forums on Dead.net, when you look at reviews of shows from 84 on Archive or Relisten, people really, really like 84. So it's kind of surprising that there there aren't more shows released from 84, but I think that we talked about this on that 81 show, that basically after 81, from 82 until 80 through 88, it's like one or two shows per year, every year. Mm-hmm. But yeah, not a lot of official coverage. Got a couple of other things about uh, 84, so this is just a short note. Um, but there were some songs being added and removed from the repertoire in 84, which you may not think because there wasn't an album and it had been two years since their last album at this point, but um, added to the repertoire that year were Dear Mr. Fantasy, um, I Don't Need Love, a Brent song, um, and Give Me Some Love. And so actually all Brent songs. Um, and then songs removed from the repertoire on the road again, left the, the um, live act for good after 1983. So, some interesting moving and shaking. Brent becoming more of a focal point within their live sets and on the road again, going the way of the dinosaur. Interesting. The venue, the William Randolph Hearst Greek Theater at Yikes. University of California, Berkeley, <laughs> in Berkeley, California. Around between eight and 9,000 people can fit in the amphitheater. Financed by William Randolph Hearst, the newspaper. Just a true piece of shit, William Randolph Hearst. (laughs) The newspaper and magazine tycoon. If you don't know who he is and you don't know who Tex is absolutely thrown under the bus, he his life is kind of loosely forms the basis for the protagonist, Charles Foster Kane of Citizen Kane, the nineteen forty one movie that's like I think kind of held among critics as like one of if not the best movie of all time yeah um the theater was built in 1903 and financed by him opened in september 1903 with a student production of the greek play the birds not the hitchcock movie but a greek tragedy it was added to the national register of historic places in 1982 the grateful dead played their first show at the greek in 1967 not the Grateful Dead's first show. The first show that they played at the Greek was in 1967. And they would play there about 30 times. I went through and counted 29 performances at the Greek. So a well-played-out a well played out venue. From Galapagos Griff, who claims to have attended the 83 and 84 shows at the Greek, quote, One thing that has to be noted is the place just boomed Phil's bass. And he knew it. At any time, he could take over the entire sound system. Never saw any place that could do that as much as the Greek. So Phil Phil knew how to bring the house down. And they would bring it down on July 13th, starting with Bertha. Okay, so um, real quick, a couple other notes on, um, on the Greek. So it is tied for the 12th, or tied for number 12 on the list of the places that the dead played the most frequently, as you, as you said, 29. That is our friend Dave Davis of at Grateful Seconds and GratefulSeconds.com. That's his list, and so I trust it you know, absolutely without yeah. reservation. Uh, Dave also went to a bunch of shows at the Greek, and he's written extensively about this venue. So if you want to read some really good writing about uh, the Greek theater, 
He was there in 81, 82. He was not there on this night, but he was there the next night in um, 84. Or not the next night, the night after that, uh, the, the final night of this weekend's shows. Um, again in 85, again in 86, and then that, those were his last shows at the Greek Theater. Um, he calls it his favorite venue and the Mecca. Um, and, you know, maybe surprisingly, the only release from this theater, despite 29 shows there, is uh, a 30 Trips from the Vault show from 1968. So although a beloved theater in Dead History, not one that has re- received um, that, you know, official release attention. Wow. Yeah. And yeah. High, high praise from Dave Davis. Who knows his stuff? Um, but shall we dive in to the music? Let's do it. First set, a good, smooth Bertha. Guitar's in no hurry. Jerry's voice is like melted caramel, sweet and rich. <laughs> Just, you gotta love a Bertha opener. Yes, um, and I do. I think that, uh, so this was the fifth of seven times they played it as an opener in 1984, which makes it the fifth most popular opener of the year. Um, and it is the, it's, second to only one other song as the most common set one opener that the dead played could i from 84 no no overall from 84 it's fifth most popular overall Mm -hmm. in the entire history of the grateful dead they played it the second most of any opener do you want to guess what the first one is of all time i don't think you're gonna get it i'll i'll go out on a limb and say that i would not have got i would not have guessed this cold rain and snow good guess but no it's jack straw Whoa, okay. Yeah, I was quite surprised by that as well. But Bertha is second most um, ever. And um, yeah, they played it 157 times to open shows between 1971 and 1995. So a very frequent, regular opener. But hey, if it works, it works. And Bertha as an opener works really well. This is already, they're already off to a really zippy pace, I think, in this song. You can hear that um, seventh member of the band just working working its magic <laughs> off the bat. One thing that, I, a couple things about this, Bob and Brent stood out to me for this song. Bob's sound is so clear in the mix. He's like, his guitar is louder than Jerry's and his voice is louder than Jerry's at some times. Yeah. Bob, uh, Brent's voice is also much louder than I expected. And um, so I, I thought that they both added and it was kind of cool. It grounds you in the era that you're in when you, first of all, you hear Jerry's, the state of Jerry's voice and then you hear the state of Bob and Brent's voice right afterward. Um, but yeah, I thought this was a good version. The standout moment to me was Brent rising up on the keys around like 445. I thought that was a really cool moment in this song, and I thought it was a, a good opener. Yeah, great opener. Number 76, Bertha on Heady Version. So for a song, they played that often. Decently high up there. And they roll from Bertha into Greatest Story. What do you think of this? So my first, I have two notes off the rip. The first is this is mixed down for some reason. I'm not sure why it's quieter than um, Bertha. The second is this song is at a DEFCON 4 risk of sneakery drums, but there are some great moments between the drummers and some sneakery ones, to be fair. 
there's just lots of toms going on. Um, a lot in the, of toms in drum world on this song, um, but I do really like the solo that Jerry uh, breaks off in like the three minute range, like three minutes to three thirty. Um, it just he's playing with authority, and I I, I dug that. And so I thought that this was uh, maybe a bit of an uneven um, song, but I, I still I wasn't mad at it. Yeah. Because Jerry was so low in the mix, like you talked about earlier, we got to hear Bob doing some fun stuff on the rhythm in the second half of the song, um, which was fun to listen to. Next up, a song that I have been historically low on, but that's about to change. A little upbeat, cocaine-fueled dire wolf. Fun, upbeat, thought Billy was doing some fun stuff. The drums got reined in a little. They weren't as sneakery. It just sounded like everyone was having a good time. It did. You can hear Jerry calling it before the song, too. Um, he says something like, Direwolf? And then they go into it. So I feel like that makes it a little bit extra fun, too, knowing that it's just like a spur of the moment. What about this song? Let's go for it. And I, I thought this was a fine version. I, because I just I think I like this song more than you, I'm maybe looking at it with less of a critical lens and just more of a, you know, okay, it's another, another good Direwolf. Um, Jerry's voice does sound really good on this and I think it is a very tight version like you said they yeah. rein in the drums a bit they don't they don't jam it out too much it's pretty much what I'm looking for in a in a dire wolf I just didn't it wouldn't be like a, a top one for me but it is good yeah and I don't think it would be for me either I think my enjoyment came from listening to it right after the Dave's Picks 45 um, dire wolf which is very slow and then hearing this like upbeat go 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 tempo, I thought I had a better a better experience listening to it. Nice. Some good mood tunes. The first three songs: "Birth" has a happy song, "Greatest Story" is a happy song, "Direwolf" is that like dot, that giddiness song. Like yeah, it's about don't murder me, but it's like giddy and sing yeah. songy and fun. Yeah. So totally. they're having a good time uh, until the <laughs> until the end of that third song and then we go into a much darker place for the next run of songs yeah kicking it off uh, that run with cc rider um which bob sounded good yeah so <laughs> all right so this is i think a really good cc rider i will agree with you there bob does sound good if you don't like bob's slide guitar stylings this is not the song for you yeah not do not on. do not listen to this song <laughs> if that's not for you um i think that from like the four minute mark onward is when this song really shines and there's like a really nice brent solo then a long bobby slide solo and that's why like you know i i think it's it's a fine bobby slide solo but if if that's not your thing it's so long that you're gonna be kind of upset about it i think um but then a really really great solo from jerry that begins around 625 that i think is like worth the price of admission right there also great drumming on this song like there is it's not sneakery it's they're locked in with one another um and i wrote down i don't remember why the 740 mark mickey is doing interesting things on the toms that i appreciated so i i thought this was a good cc rider I just, I know that this song is not for everyone, not everyone's speed. And I know that Bob right. on, the sli- on the slide guitar is not uh, everyone's speed, but for it is my speed. And so I was very much here for it. Yeah, we've been pretty blessed though. We, we've talked about three CC writers on the show and all three of them have been exceptional. 
That's true. If you've only listened to the shows that we've been listening to and you've only experienced those CC riders and you know, I think part of it is just like if you listen to enough of 80s dead, it, it can just kind of get repetitive. That Bobby Blue slot at the beginning of the first set and it's like, "Oh my god, like how many times can I hear Little Red Rooster?" basically. Um, but this I do think that this one was good. Yeah. Speaking of good, they roll into Loser. And immediately, Jerry wraps you up in this soulful, sad story. He, had, you know, like I just said, he had been happy, Jerry, with his good mood tunes in the beginning, and on a dime, he changes to this ballad. What do you think of "Loser"? Uh, more great soloing on this song. I thought that Jerry continues to just crush it. Yeah, I his think solo was like the epic battle scene in a movie. <laughs> There's like toms, there's crashing cymbals, Jerry allowing the notes to fill your ear and resound before he attacked the next one. Like I, I was listening to it and I was like, this is just so intense and dramatic. Like it sounds like it's out of a movie. There's a, you can sense the beginning, middle, and end of the solo, just like a battle scene in a movie, or, or just like a movie in general, any story, yeah, you know, um, so I thought that was really good. Um, I think that this song is really great for Brent's voice. I think he adds a lot in this performance, but, and this is true of any show from this era, this is when Jerry had gotten like really heavy, he was very out of shape, he ran out of breath much more easily, his voice was much more kermit is how I would describe it, like high-pitched, and he doesn't have that same like 70s warm Jerry voice. And so there are some moments in this song where he sounds really out of breath. And you can hear that he's given it his all, which I think adds to the the warm feelings I have about this version. But just like looking at it objectively, if you were going to listen to like a 72 show and then this one, it would be like, man, that guy lived a hard 12 years in between because his voice does not sound nearly as good yeah. um, by 84. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you liked it because the masses did too. Number 29, Loser on Heady Version. I just, I thought start to finish this was 
a masterpiece. Nice. The masses. If the masses say it's 29th, I mean, who am I to disagree? <laughs> I, I. It's also, I like knowing that the masses are like, they just will take Jerry's voice as it comes in whatever era. And they're, mm-hmm. you know, I, I would expect nothing less, but it is, it is nice. Like that's not the only thing that determines whether or not it's a good performance. Far from right. it. So yeah, that is good job. Masses. From loser move on into Cassidy. Um, and I think here was a song where the seventh band member reared her head. Um, <laughs> it's, it, it's so fast. It, almost feels frantic oh yeah like bob can barely sing the words vocally and this isn't trucking where he you know can barely do that this is cassidy like come on man but it's funny so quick we were saying in the last uh episode about dave's picks 45 we were like this is a really fast like good cassidy like this tempo is good it sounds a little bit and then like (laughs) compared to that one this one is like at another gear. They turned it up to 11, the tempo. This is also the most sneakery song of set one in, in my mind. Like they, I don't know. <laughs> the note that I have is the drummers are doing everything everywhere all at once. They're just, <laughs> it's so chaotic. And so, um, yeah, I, I don't know about this Cassidy, but I was still captivated by it because it's so wild. And there are a couple yeah. notes at the very end of this song, just a few that I thought they were about to start playing Stella Blue. And I was like, Mm. what? Are they about in like the middle of set one going from Cassidy to Stella Blue? That would have been (laughs) wild. I would have been very here for it. But um, I, I, for some reason, you know, I know that that's not a thing that they would have ever done. But for a second, I was like, is that what's happening here? Um, And on that note, actually, I was was telling you this um, beforehand that I wanted to tell you something about the chalkiness of this show we're going to get into some two very interesting nuances with this set list uh later on but i was looking at this set list when we decided to do this show and i was like man with the exception of those two things everything is like in its exact place where i would expect it to be there are no like twists And so I did some analysis of this. Like I said, Bertha, the second most common set one opener that they ever played. The set one closer of this show was the seventh most common um, set one closer, but it was the most common set one closer of 84. The the song that opened set two was the second most common set two opener that they ever played behind China Cat Sunflower. And same for 1984, the second most common. Um, the song that they played into drums was one of the most common songs that they played into drums from 83 to 85. So like dead chalk for this era. The song that they played coming out of space was the second most commonly played song out of space behind only the other one. And in this era, especially early 80s, it's the most common. The song that they closed set two with is by far the most common set two closer that they ever played. Um over 130 times more than the next closest song that they finished set two with. On top of that, every single song in this set is played in the set that it's most commonly played in. There's no like set two song that they played in set, you know, that they mostly played in set two, but they played in set one tonight or vice versa. All of the songs that are in set one, if you look at the number of times they played them and broke it down by set, it's more than 70% of the time that they played in set one. And the inverse is true for set two. There are no songs where it's like, well, 
they played um, Scarlet Begonias in set two, but that's typically a set one song. It is all chalk across the board. So it's interesting that, I found that interesting at least, that within, I think that if you just told someone the two twists in the set list, they would be like, that's one of the most interesting Grateful Dead sets that's ever come along. (laughs) But when you actually look at the whole thing beyond those two twists, it's actually like as chalky as chalk can be. Huh. Very, very cool. Because, yeah, and we're going to get to those two twists in set two. But um, very, very cool. That Other than that, it's pretty standard form, except for the two biggest asterisks of maybe their playing career. Exactly. Yeah, and that's exactly <laughs> what I'm saying is, like, again, if you were to mention those two things, and, I mean, I don't know why we're hiding the ball, they play yeah. Scarlet Fire into Touch of Grey and then into Fire on the Mountain. Um, to open set two, which is very unique. They only did that twice. Or, I'm sorry, they only did it eight times. Um, and then they encore with Dark Star, which they only did twice. Those two are, like, pretty wild things. And so um, I I would have, when we picked this song because of the Scarlet Touch Fire, and that's the reason I'd heard this, this show, mm-hmm. excuse me, the reason we picked this show, and that's the reason I'd heard this show before is because of that segment... I guess I would have thought, well, maybe 1984, they were low-key just doing some weird shit with their set lists and like really mixing it up. But even throughout the course, I, I listened to all three shows from this weekend because we had more time as we were preparing. And even like the next couple nights, it's like each night there's one unique thing going on and then the rest of it is really chalky. And, and so I, I don't know. It's I don't know what to make of that. I just found it like worth remarking on no it's fascinating the stats are as a baseball fan the stats are fascinating to me and as a i mean deadheads love stats too so it's a real a match made in heaven (laughs) Um, but anyway all of those stats aside the next song in set one is uh, dupree's diamond blues which we just talked about like a lot of these songs there's repetition between the 77 show we just talked about and now this show in 84 yeah um and kind of like this 77 show. I thought this was okay. I liked the bubbly distortion on Jerry's guitar and the solo. That was kind of my review of it. And I, we talked about it last time. Not the biggest Dupree guy. But I, I thought that this was all right. What about you? I'm not a Dupree head whatsoever. <laughs> but this song has been stuck in my head a lot over the last few weeks. Just because we've heard ah. two versions of it now. Yeah, Bob, in the beginning at least, is using this really sharp midi tone, and it is night and day from what he's doing in the 77 version, which also I also didn't love. So it's not like I loved what he was doing in 77, and now I'm like, I didn't really like this. But yeah, it not not it for me, dog. Um, Jerry's solo is super wah-filled. It's just a, a wah-fest that begins around 145. Um, I liked it just, I think, mainly because it sounds like he's having a bunch of fun, and just rocking out with the wah pedal and so i thought that was kind of cool brent or bob one of the two i'm not sure who is completely gone from the mix by the end of this song i think it's bob because so i think so too but the other has this gnarly midi tone and i kept going i listened to this song like three times to try to figure out is that a piano or is that a guitar and with the midi 
on it, it it's kind of hard to tell. And yeah, I was just like, there were moments where I was like, that's definitely Brent. No, wait, that's definitely Bob. What's going on right now? <laughs> and I got so confused by it. Uh, and I think I was so distracted by that that I also have no idea what Phil was doing on this song. Um, yeah, same. I, I don't have like a real sense for his work on Dupree. But I, I, yeah, the, the, the thing that stood out to me was Jerry's solo and the rest was just kind of confusing, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> but this is why we go to the masses for help because you know, okay. neither of us are big on Dupree, but we need the masses to kind of celebrate us. Yeah. The number 10 Dupree on Heady version. It's a top 10 version that we're sitting here <laughs> lambasting. I think our but, take is more accurate than the masses on this one, but ooh. I, I don't know. I mean, look, right, right in. If you feel strongly that this is like a great version of a, of a great song, please let us know. But like, this was just not it for me. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I liked it. There's a little funkiness at the end and Jerry Solo, like you talked about. But when I saw how high it was, I was pleasantly surprised. And speaking of top 10 versions of songs, the next song up, Hell in a Bucket. masses on this because i i i was enjoying the ride uh <laughs> drummers were going crazy weir is like screaming so much he's losing his voice but it yeah. doesn't sound bad it just sounds passionate and then jerry started to cook at the 430 mark building up a well-engineered solo it didn't there wasn't like a peak it was kind of like the solo in loser with just like different plateaus of yeah. upbeat dancing energy Totally. Um, I, I enjoyed this. Totally. Yeah, I definitely agree. Bob's voice does get pretty ragged by the ride, ride, <laughs> ride part at the end. Uh, and maybe that's why the next four songs are all Jerry tunes. But mm. the the intro is longer than most. I, I really like Hell in a Bucket. Um, and the, the intro is a little bit longer than a lot of Hells in a Bucket. It's like 90 seconds long. I think it's good. Phil's back in the mix now. He's got a much steadier hand in this song than he did in Dupree's but yeah, I, to- I really definitely agree with what you're saying about Jerry. Like two to three minutes, th- that window, there's like a nice solo. And then around 4.15 into 4.30 and five minutes, the part that you're talking about is another really good solo. But I actually think his best playing on the entire song is starting around the seven minute mark when <laughs> Bob, while Bobby is enjoying the ride, 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 Jerry <laughs> just has an Indian bead string that he's working on underneath that sounds fantastic and just really really works for me so yeah I, I think this was a this is a really good hell in a bucket yeah number nine on heady version man i think deservedly so I've, I've listened to a lot of 89 hell in a buckets there's they were playing it really really well that year especially that summer and this one stands up with those i so i i definitely could see this one being up there you're buying what the masses are selling absolutely the masses and i are back on Nice. <laughs> From Hell in a Bucket into the set one closer, might as well, might as well. Um, mm-hmm. And this is definitely a program debut for us. Uh, we yeah. definitely haven't talked about this song yet. 
Um, Might as well, aka Mighty Swell, depending on which tape you review. It's definitely Might as well, but some people uh, list it as Mighty Swell. Oh, interesting. Yeah, as I said earlier, um, the most common set one closer of 1984, they closed 19 of their 62 sets, uh, first sets with um, Might as well. And it was the seventh most common set one closer overall. So it's kind of surprising that we haven't talked about it. But the first time I heard this song, I was completely taken by it. I was It was love at first listen. I was infatuated. I listened to like 20 versions because I had never heard it before. And it's kind of unique. Like what, what dead song would you m- compare most closely to Might As Well? Don't ease me in. I think don't. I think the answer would probably either be "Don't Ease," aka "Don't Ease," another uh, fun labeling <laughs> exercise, depending on where you're looking. Um, I think the other one would be "U.S. Blues." Hmm. So the thing that all three of those songs to me have in common is that they are somewhat anthemic, but in a like oddly classical way. U.S. Blues the most so. Like, you know, what's the guy's name who wrote um, the National Anthem? It's like Scott something key. Francis Scott Key. Francis Scott Key. It's not like Francis Scott Key classic, but there is like a, the, like you could think about like that beat being played at like a sock hop, basically. Okay. Whereas Don't Ease and Might As Well are more modern for their time, I think. But I do think that the chorus of all three is like very powerful and driving and anthemic for for all three of them. And I think that there's a reason why all three are set one closers. Well, U.S. Blue is more of an encore, right? Yeah. I mean, or a set closer. It could could really go either way. Either way. Yeah. I don't know. It gives me Don't Ease Me In vibes. I prefer Don't Ease Me In. I guess I was not as as smitten with might as well as as you were in this version i really liked brent's playful playful piano um i thought that that kind of stood out to me and uh set one close with a good little run number 13 might as well on heady version wow so three three straight top 15s yeah yeah i'm a bit surprised that this one's in the top 15 to be honest there there are just some in the late 70s where jerry's got this like snarl working on his voice that just really works for me and so anyway personal proclivity yeah all right so why are we here why are we talking about this show it's about to come up the set two opener is a rare rare trifecta where the dead went scarlet begonias which they probably opened a lot of set twos with that's not that uncommon 191 times yes like i said the second most common behind china cat sunflower both overall in the breadth of their history and in specifically in 1984. But then from Scarlet, not directly into Fire, into Touch of Grey as a little surprise, and then out of Touch of Grey right into Fire on the Mountain, which it when you hear them pull it off, it works so well, you wonder why they didn't do it more. Completely disagree. This is a very interesting diametric opposition between the two of us. I don't think this works whatsoever. I've listened to all eight versions of Scarlet Into Touch, and I don't think they ever landed the plane. Wow. Yeah. 
Interesting. So let me ask you why, because I think maybe the reason why I like it is the reason you dislike it. That's my theory right now. So I just don't find it to be particularly satisfying. I'm so used to, I think, the payoff of Scarlet into Fire that that the the payoff of one into the other feels really rewarding and earned. Kind of the same way I feel about um, China into Rider, where the when they start picking up the pace in Rider after China Cat, I'm like, oh hell yeah, here we go. I'm I'm along for this ride. It just feels clunky for me every time. And like I said, I listened to all eight versions um, that they did of these because I, I heard this and was like, maybe, so this was the fifth of the eight times that they had done it. And so I, I went back, I listened to them in chronological order, was like, well, maybe the eighth time that they did it, they really had it down. Or like maybe the fourth time there was just this weird alchemy in the air and they nailed it that time. I don't think that they ever did, to be honest. So I think... Um, I don't know. I just it just does not work for me. Here's why I enjoyed it so much. I I'm a big mystery fan, a big fan of the twist, the the gotcha. And I've been in a mystery kick lately. Um kind of in part thanks to Glass Onion, um that coming out near the end of the year and then I got some mystery books for the holidays and so I've been in a big mystery kick. The the way that they they complete the transition from Scarlet to Fire. Like they are, they have finished playing Scarlet Begonias and they start playing Fire on the Mountain. And if you're standing there in the audience, you are just ready to enjoy Fire on the Mountain. And then all of a sudden, it's a surprise party when Brent just kind of guides them into touch and Jerry just hops on and all of a sudden they're playing Touch of Grey and you're like, whoa, what's happening? I just, I love the surprise party element of they had they were starting to play fire they've lulled the crowd into that normal transition that you know and love and then boom all of a sudden something else is happening and now you're on your toes i appreciated that so that's why i liked this and i think that's the exact reason why you kind of didn't like it well i mean let's just say in most situations like this no one's right and no one's wrong i actually think you're right about this but it doesn't change me not liking it. Like I, I think that your view of it and your appreciation for it is the right attitude to have about it. And I wish that I could be there and, and enjoy it. <laughs> for me, I hear what you're saying about like they, them playing just a hair of the beginning of Fire on the Mountain. But it comes across rather to me, it sounds to you, you're giving them the benefit of the doubt. And it rings like, you know, uh, tricksterish that they, Mm -hmm. you know, that they're doing it. To me, it sounds like they have no idea what the hell they're doing. And it sounds like disorganized (laughs) and kind of unsatisfyingly chaotic. And I love a good dose of chaos in Grateful Dead music. But this one for me just, and again, it's not just this version, it's whenever they did that transition. I just, it it just did not grab me. Um, I will say the first time they did um, Scarlet Into Touch was May 8th, 1984. And that broke up a 109 performance streak where Scarlet was followed by fire. From that point until Brent's death from 84 um, through 1990, Scarlet was usually followed by fire, but not always. So they, maybe it was Brent who was driving that difference and saying like, we don't always have to go into fire. We can do other fun stuff too. After Brent, with one exception, it was always fire that came after Scarlet. So I think that that is maybe his doing. Um, it's definitely his doing here. Like he is the first one to start 
the touch of gray piano. Well, the touch of gray music yeah. through his piano. It makes um, sense too, because he crushes touch of gray. I mean, we should talk about Scarlet first, but yeah. Yeah. Um, it's an upbeat, I mean, quick tempo, duh, cocaine. And then Scarlet. the jam. Yeah. <laughs> You're talking about, yeah. Yeah. And the jam in Scarlet, I thought, just really came to a heat near the six minute mark. Like they had been going for a little while. They had sung all the verses and now they were launching up and uh, I, I enjoyed it. Me too. I thought it was really, really good. Around 2.30, the drumming is just like so tight. I loved it. Phil comes onto the scene in a major way right around seven minutes. There's some light, bubbly playing from Jerry, and then it tightens up and starts to ascend around like 7.45 and becomes a full-on Indian bead string. Mickey uses some really interesting percussion sounds throughout Scarlet. I, I really like what he's doing on this song. Um, and, and Brent's tone kind of reminds me of a steel drum in a weird way. Uh, I don't know what yeah, midified thing he's doing. It's cool, though. It, it, it It's also like Fire on the Mountain is their re- most reggae-ish song, and so that's where you would think that there would be a steel drum sound. And so it's kind of a cool, to your point about um, upsetting expectations, it's kind of cool that he's got that on the traditional lead into Fire on the Mountain, and maybe um, that is doing more to condition us to think it's going to be Fire coming next, and then instead... We get the twist. One more thing on uh, Scarlet. Jerry's playing in the final 30 seconds definitely does start to sound like Fire on the Mountain. for the transition it's brent first jerry second bob and the drumming third and then phil last um to go into an energetic but honestly in my opinion an an average touch of gray i mean brent is going to town on the piano other than that it was kind of just there but it was just the the cool and the wow factor of coming out of Scarlet into touch that did it for me. I think your analysis of touch is, I agree with it. It takes them like a good 30 seconds to find it. Like, although everyone is like coming together, they just don't, they're not locked in with each other and really playing touch of gray for a while. And then um, I do think that Brent is the pretty clear high point of this song, both vocally and instrumentally. I think that what he's doing is great and he's the most captivating part I do think that this is the weak point of this triumvirate because I, I think the Scarlet yes, is I quite good. Yeah, and then um, the the Fire. So although this was the eighth time they had played Scarlet into Touch of Grey, this was only the second time they had done Scarlet Touch Fire. The first was 10 days earlier in Kansas City. Um, 
the home of the Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs. Yeah. Um, and I think that this transition from touch into fire is a lot smoother than the Scarlet Touch transition, mainly, in my opinion, because of Jerry and Mickey, but it is still a bit clunky. Um, it takes them a little while to find fire on the mountain um, after after touch recedes. Yeah, but I I kind of liked how they didn't rush it. They kind of let fire... Yes, they didn't find it right away, but they they gave it space to grow. And then once they came into fire, um, I thought it was actually... I, I think you nailed it. The touch is the weak point of the three, I think. I think they found a really good fire afterward. Yeah. What are the things that make it really good for you? I think just, just really solid drumming and really solid, more good piano stuff from Brent. Like Brent came out into set two with a, with a, a passion. He did. So for me, uh, it's funny that you said patient and like, laid back and giving it space because i think that the solo that jerry plays that wraps around the five minute mark starts in the four minute range and keeps going is just super laid back and patient and it's just really wonderful phil's matching that energy with some really jazzy playing of his own at that time that i think is wonderful bob is way down in the mix on this song it sounds like he's playing in a well like you can really barely hear him and so i don't kind of happens for the rest of set two yeah like, the rest of set two, Bob, is quite low. Yeah, and it it's kind of a shame. I mean, it's really a shame because what he's doing on the next song is really interesting, but he's so low in the mix that you have to, like, I couldn't really hear it on my original headphones, and then I put on my noise-canceling headphones and could, but it's kind of a bummer that he's so low in the mix. But there there's the sound that Brent makes around the three-minute mark and then again around the 9.30 mark that's got this, like, choop, 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 um, in Fire on the Mountain. I have no idea what he's doing. It sounds like chug, chug, chug is the only thing I could describe it as. It almost sounds like it sounds like someone like choking or muffling notes. And it's very interesting. I have no idea what he's doing. I'm pretty sure it's him. Um, but I don't know. I'd be interested to know what, what's happening there. If any of you know like what he is doing to create that sound or if it's someone else, please let us know because I think it's fascinating. And one of those... Um, worthy and worth it moments yeah i don't know how you can like rank this because like scarlet touch only happened eight times scarlet touch fire i think only happened twice so it's the number 55 scarlet fire on heady version with the obvious comment like there's touch in the middle and it's like yeah i don't know how that how you how that falls um with the masses but number 55 for a song that's like so highly regarded and so yeah well thought of i just the the surprise element just made it so different and so cool for me i think that that gets it much higher than it would be frankly i think this would be in like the 100 150 something like that range if not for the touch in the middle i think that's probably right so the next song like i said um so we have one more song and then drums in space uh, it's Man Smart, Woman Smarter. Um, from 1983 to 85, the fifth most common intro into drums behind Playin', Eyes, He's Gone, and Terrapin. Of the 199 times that they played this song, 37 were going into drums, which makes it the seventh most of any song throughout their um, career. So, yeah, kind of a 
an interesting one. They debuted the song in 81 and then played it all the way through 95 and through 2022. Um, I heard it this summer. And I mean, it's a fine version. Jerry has some really good soloing in like the four minute mark. And Bob's playing sounds really interesting to me, but he's so far down in the mix that you can't really make sense of it, uh, which I think is a bit of a bummer. But I think you and I both agree on this. This song is Discount Ico. And so I just like, yeah, I I don't know. (laughs) What the hell is the guy's name who covered it? Well, they're both covers, but Harry Belafonte, that's who it is. Oh, whoa, actually, originally composed by Norman Spann, known as King Radio, a top Trinidadian Calypsonian active in 1930s and 1940s. Huh, interesting. Artists from many genres have covered it, including most notably Harry Belafonte, also Joan Baez, The Carpenters, Roseanne Cash, Chubby Checker, Chubby Checker, excuse me, Robert Palmer, and Rat Dog. <laughs> it's funny that it says <laughs> Rat Dog rather than The Grateful Dead. <laughs> oh man wow (laughs) shout out to wikipedia Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um it is sung by desi arnaz lucille ball and um and william frawley and vivian vance in the 1957 episode i love lucy entitled ragtime band interesting Ah, i bet ico was written around the same time by another calypsonian band but oh actually this is a new orleans song originally um Originally written and released in 1953, so this one is at least 10 years older, or 10 years newer than um, than Man Smart, Woman Smarter. Ico is newer? Yeah. Gotcha. I'm quite so surprised maybe, by that. Yeah, maybe Ico is bargain Man Smart, Woman Smarter. I mean, I think you and I both prefer Ico, but, but with yeah. this Man Smart, Woman Smarter, it's fantastic. I really liked what Brent was doing, both vocally and musically. I thought there were pretty fun drums um, that bordered on sneakery, but didn't quite go over the line. Um, and the 80s echoey mic is back. And I think there are some songs where it hurts and some song where it helps. And this is a song that really helps. I think the echoey mic really does this song a favor. Yeah. I also think that the song does a really nice job of transitioning into drums. Uh, mm-hmm. It's cool. There's a video of this part of the show that you can find on YouTube. And they stop this track on a dime um, before they go into drums. So <laughs> I don't know. Like, you can watch in the video. They stop this song and it, like, crashes to a halt. The stage goes black. And then the lights come back on, like, a second later. And Billy and Mickey are just, like, back on the gongs. But before that, at the end of Man Smart, Woman Smarter for, like, the last 30 seconds, Mickey is antsy to get into drums and he's just standing up playing drums and just like kind of looking at everyone like let's get into the drums um so yeah i I thought that that was kind of funny um but it's a good kind of i mean i really enjoyed this drums the beginning segment kind of sounds like man smart woman smarter for like a minute and then we get into some real tom pounding theatrics um Mm -hmm. for the next little part and then a much weirder like spacey, midified, quadraphonic drumming section um, more toward the end. I thought that that was actually really cool um, at the end of drums. And then space gets really weird um, in a good way. <laughs> Probably the most so around like the 430 mark 
we get this like quadraphonic whizzing around our earphones that's just coming mm-hmm. at us from everywhere. I don't know how they created that sound, but it was really, really cool. So yeah, that's cool. I was very much uh, here for the drum space on this night. Yeah, I liked it too. One quick note on Man Smart, Woman Smarter, number yeah. 10 on Heady Version. So if it's top 10, I gotta, I gotta let you know. Yeah, um, gotta shout it out. But yeah, I thought the, I thought the drums were great. Um, I liked how it was like a woodlands jungle theme going on for most of it. Um, and then you mentioned a very common post space song. Do you want to talk about the stats with the wheel? Um, just that it's the second most commonly played song out of space. We've seen it actually in person um, played out of space. The first dead and co show that you and I went to together. Yeah. I've seen it twice actually live um, out of space. So to that point, there you go. Um, it is the only song that's more common in their history is the other one, which makes sense. Um, it debuted in this slot in 1980, and it stayed there through 95. If you go to shows with the wheel from any of those years, you'll you'll catch it coming out of space. Makes sense. Um, it's a nice kind of easing back into playing after yeah. uh, after space, and then it picks up and gets you know extra you know the the pace and tempo changes. It's just a nice song um, after after space. The bells at the beginning are pretty odd. I thought I thought it was kind of cool, but it it felt a little bit to me at the very beginning of the song like they were deciding between the wheel and I Need a Miracle, and then they go with um, the wheel. My only complaint about this song, it, it's a minor one, is I just don't love the tone that Brent's using on his keyboard. It just sounds like a little bit rinky-dink to me to a song for a song that like has some real grandeur to it when it's played with just a regular piano. Um, yeah. And that like kind of classes it up a little bit, I guess, in a way. <laughs> and so like kind of the like rinky dink sound that's going on there kind of sounds just thin compared to what I think could have been the sound. Yeah. I, I think what Brent was doing vocally was far better than what he was doing playing wise. Um, you and I have been very low on the wheel recently. I think the last three shows we've talked about that had the wheel in it we have both agreed that it's like the low point of the show so i i was proud to have a good little wheel renaissance here because i really dug this version and i think it was i think part of the reason i dug it was they they kind of kept it nice and tight they didn't do too much with it they let it enjoy that moment of grandeur like you talked about but then they rolled right from the wheel into i need a miracle the song they were debating going into Um, yeah that you just said um and they launch into the into that transition thanks to billy and mickey that they do bob's voice is sounding real gruff at oh, this point yeah. of the night <laughs> um he's still belting it out and you gotta respect that i mean he's giving it the the absolute gusto um but yet i don't think anything really particularly interesting about this i need a miracle also very tight very short version of this song i think the I think the only interesting thing is this is the only I Need a Miracle they played in 1984. Wow, that is interesting. Um, So that that is a third interesting twist in the set list. Yeah, it's two and a half. Because this is a set to post-space song. Oh, yeah. But, Um, I mean, it's just cool that they they weren't playing it in 84 and then they busted it out. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Um, And then from I Need a Miracle, they, they slow it right down and roll into Stella Blue. Yeah. Um, and man, what a Stella Blue. This is excellent, in my opinion. 
Um, Jerry sounded good right off the bat. Thought he had an awesome juxtaposition of like gentle yet strong going with his vocals. I don't have much to, to add to that. I agree with you. I will say my wife, who is a Stella Bluehead, that's her favorite dead song. Whenever we get one that we're going to talk about, I play it for her and say like, let's get your opinion on this Stella Blue. Um, yeah. Miss, Miss Stella Bluehead. She did not like it at all. She was Whoa. way down on this version. The echo in the beginning, that kind of echo mic that you were talking about, she was like that completely like took me out of this song. Like this song is so like beautiful and soulful as it is. It just doesn't need that. And it's discordant mm. with what's going on with the rest of the song. And so she said, I don't like that at all. And I was like, well, okay. I'm not going to let you turn it off after a minute because you don't like the <laughs> echo that's going on. And she said, okay, fine. And then... um as it went on, she was like, all right, I do like this version a little bit more because Jerry is so emotional in his singing. Yeah. Um, she had a kind of an interesting comment that I think maybe others would agree with too. The worse Jerry's voice sounds, the more she likes the version of this song, she said. Like there are some 90s versions that she really likes because him sounding a bit rougher makes it sound more sweet in a way. Um, and kind of because you use the term juxtaposition, I think that's an interesting juxtaposition as well. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that she rallied to enjoy it because I didn't want to have to break the news to her that the masses <laughs> totally disagreed with her initial reaction. Uh, the number 17 Stella Blue on Hetty version. Um, that's that's so pretty good. Pretty high. Yeah. And I thought, they... I, I thought that they like really stood out. Like the Stella Blue really stood out. What did you think of the Echo? I didn't mind it. I. I'm with you. I kind of could take it or leave it. I was like, all right, well, it is what it is. Yeah, and I think, like, you know, around the three-minute mark with, like, the ooze in the background and his ringing voice and this, like, crescendo of drums, I actually think, like, at that part of the song, it helped. Yeah, it it caught Um, my attention for sure. The first time it happened, I was like, ooh, what is going on here? This is interesting. So, yeah, I'm, I'm more with you. Yeah. And then into the chalk closer, Sugar Mags. You know, it's chalk, but it's chalk for a reason, man. I mean, yeah. great. I, I think the best set to closer. I think it's the the most common set to closer for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, in the eight, It's interesting. So this song is number one, like I said, by far the most common closer. 380 shows closed with Sugar Magnolia. Next up, second on the list is Not Fade Away, 251 times. But interestingly, in the 80s, it's flipped. And Not Fade Away is the most common set closer of the 80s, and Sugar Mag is second most common of the 80s. Um, NFA was just slightly more common every year, with the exception of 83 and 85, where Sugar Mag was the most common set closer of those two years. But other years, it was like, um, there were some where it's Not Fade Away was played like 10 more times to close the set than Sugar Mag. So yeah, they were... They were in a Not Fade Away vibe in the 80s. And later on this weekend, they did close a show with Not Fade Away. So the fans who were there for all of the nights, uh, they got a taste of both. This is a really rockin' version of this song. Really rockin' version. Bob's vocals are not good. Let's start with the bad. His vocals are, they're they're worn out. Yeah, he they, is, they are. He is worn out. It's true. Other than that, it's it's high energy. It's fun i for me easily the the most fun part of this song is at the three minute mark at the end of the first chorus where brent hits you with the quadruple piano slide (laughs) that was that was so great 
it just it didn't stop it was like an onslaught in your ears it was it was fantastic yeah um and brent i mean brent just lit it up the rest of the song so spirited about it everything that brent's doing you're totally right his his playing is so spirited throughout this entire song it's great the plan in like the five minutes of 545 minute marks like that 45 seconds is really great bob's like bending his strings and letting the reverb get weird which is pretty cool i think just like adding some character to it and yeah his voice is is pretty tough at this point we talked about it in like the end of the first set his his voice was starting to sound kind of ragged and so you know i mean the show must go on and bobby was ready to go and so i've got nothing but respect for it and it didn't take away from this version for me at all i thought it was really good and so yeah i'm i'm all about this sugar mag Number 27, Sugar Mac, the heading version. Damn. I mean, that's really saying something with how his voice sounded on this song. Yeah. It, the, I mean, the first time I listened to this, I was like, that feels almost too high. And it, I still okay might share it. that view. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I hear what you're saying. The they playing did... is so spirited, though, that yeah. I think it makes up for what he's not bringing on the mic. That does feel a little bit high, but it is a really rocking version. So I'm not going to argue with the masses on that. So that's the end okay. of set two. And so cast your mind back to what we were talking about with the Scarlet Touch Fire thing. So yeah. Sugar Mag's just played. You're sit, you're standing at the Greek amphitheater and they come back out. And I mean, what, what could you be thinking? Like, oh, they were really upbeat. They're going to go with an upbeat Johnny Be Good and close the night. Or, oh, they were really upbeat. Maybe they'll wind it down with Broke Down. I would be thinking one of those two things without any, you know, possibility of a doubt completely. Right. And, and, and I mean, to be, to be fair, um, a couple nights later on Sunday, they encored with broke down and then Johnny be good. So <laughs> that, that did happen later in the weekend, that exact thing. But for now, yeah, that, that's what I've been thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And then you hear them start to play dark star. imagine what the people in the audience must have been thinking when they heard that yeah and uh, they just must have looked at each other with their jaws on the floor completely i i think that that is like the you know murder mystery twist um so to speak like that's much you know to a level like the magnitude far greater than i mean really most things in like most moments in grateful dead history Honestly, yeah. because they had done Dark Star as an encore once before, but it was in the middle of a five song encore. That's like, is this even an encore at this point? Or is this just a short third set? It was on New Year's Eve. So New Year's Eve, you know, a lot of encores coming on, on those concerts. So even with that, this is completely unprecedented before and afterward. 
Like it is yeah. for for all intents and purposes, this is the only time they ever encore with Darkstar. And so yeah, as delighted as I was listening to it, I truly can't imagine like the the glee that people would, would be feeling <laughs> yeah. to hear Darkstar come, you know, start coming out of the amps. And I didn't know what to expect from this because it's like number 1, you and I aren't super well versed in 84 as it is. But number two, yeah. most of the dark stars that we've ever heard go into another song. And so it's like, well, this is the end of the show. How are they going to use dark star <laughs> to end an entire show and then walk off the stage? And man, did they land the plane. Yeah, they couldn't have picked a better style of dark star than what they did on this night. Completely With like agree. A, a more melodic not quite deep space dark star they go out just enough but for an encore they they keep it melodic and and groovy and gro- yeah that's a good word for it groovy um they they get out in space but it's like a sweet kind journey yes it's very loving you feel like safe throughout it. Yeah. And I don't mean yes. that in a way that's like, you know, oh, they played it safe. I mean like No, it, not boring. But yeah. like comforting. Yeah, no, this and is a inviting. very yeah, this is a very interesting version of Dark Star. I mean, most are. I can't think of any that are boring that I've heard. But like this <laughs> is a like even among good versions of Dark Star, this is a I think a standout version. Um yeah. the jam gets pretty thorny around like six thirty. Like they're they're deep. Um, but it's like real dense. There's a very full sound on the stage. Everyone's playing. It sounds good. And then around the 10 minute mark, they get into that up-tempo groove that then crescendos and then winds back down into the dark star theme. And it's just great. It, like I said, it was hard for me to envision how this would end the show, but it was kind of, I think like 1984's version of feedback in a lot of ways, the way that it ended, they just kind of, Hmm there's some yeah kind of right like they're just kind of letting it fade away but with some melodic keys overlaying it from brent he's not going to let the crowd just have that you know jarring feedback sound he's gonna do something more melodic which he'd been doing the entire song and so this gets a 10 out of 10 for me this actually i will say this not that i dislike the show i i enjoyed listening to it and obviously i wouldn't have listened to the next two nights of the weekend if i hadn't um but even if I had hated the rest of this show, this performance of Dark Star would have been worth the entire listening experiment for wow. sure. Yeah, I. What what else can you say about it? I thought I caught a little bird song in that time frame you were talking about the ten forty five minute mark. Interesting. I, like I thought I heard a little, a little bit of that shaking around. But yeah, the return to verse, beautifully jumbled collection of sounds. And they just, like you said, they ended with Brent kind of guiding you out of the Greek into the night. And it's just perfect. An absolute treat. Number 37, Dark Star on Heady Version, which feels right to me. Like yeah. it's not a top, top version. No, but I think that's it's dead so on. different that it's still... It deserves recognition. Yeah, it deserves recognition in some way. And that seems like the right amount of recognition. 
and it's it's worth noting. So the next two nights are also really good. Um, this actually of the three shows, according to like the votes on the archive and on Relisten, is the lowest rated of the three shows by a hair. Whoa. Um, I actually disagree with people. They vote. They voted on the second night on Saturday as the best of the three. I actually think Sunday is the best night of the three, uh, personally. Mm. Um, but some interesting stuff. If you are interested in just hearing kind of some of the highlights of the next two nights, I would tell you to listen to the beginning of the second set, night two. Help slip Frank estimated eyes and then into drums. Um, that's a really nice segment of music. Also a, a really good Jack Straw that night to open things up. Um, but then the third night, I mean, the entire set list is kind of undeni- undeniable, so I'm just going to quickly read the entire thing. Set one is Dancing in the Streets into Birdsong, which is an interesting combo in and of itself. That Very, is, yeah, really interesting. Weird way to open the show, but it works really well. Then... Um, a version of New Minglewood Blues that I think you'd either really like or really dislike. I almost texted you about it when I was listening to it, and I was like, uh, maybe we'll get back to this show some other day, and then we can yeah. get Dave's opinion on the Minglewood. But this is now in the era in the 80s where Bob is doing a, a shout-out to the those, you know, there's the Philly Spectrum show where he says those Philly oh. Phillies start looking good. Yeah, and he like, like puts the city in every... Yeah, those yeah. Texas Phillies start looking good. And in this one, he says those hometown Phillies because they're... He, he, uh, he grew up in Berkeley. So those hometown Phillies start looking good. Um, then a really good Cumberland Blues. Uh, My Brother Esau, which is a nice version. Uh, Ramble on Rose, which is a, uh, also a very good performance. And then Helena Bucket closes set one. Set two opens with a batshit crazy, why don't we do it in the road? Um, that is Phil leading the vocals and just i think this is in the period of time where phil's drinking pretty heavily because he's like changing um some of the lyrics and singing it if you hear like some of his um box of rains from this era especially 85 he's do he's singing it in a way where it's like he is purposefully offbeat like there's no way around it he's singing in a very weird way and he's doing the same thing with why don't we do it in the road interesting beatles cover i didn't know that they'd ever played that so that was kind of cool. Um, into China, Ryder, playing Uncle John's, um, I Don't Need Love, Brent song that we mentioned earlier, um, Drum Space, China Doll, Throwing Stones, Not Fade Away, and then, like I said, a double encore of um, Broke Down into uh, Johnny Be Good. The Why Don't We Do It in the Road, uh, the only time it was ever played to open the second set and there's a part where Phil starts singing, why don't we do it on the drums? And only the drummers would see us. It's wild. So um, I would definitely say that this entire weekend of shows is worth checking out. Dave, in his write-up of this show, he talked about how he was living in Berkeley at the time and his roommate got free tickets to be an usher at the show, which would be like the easiest job that anyone's ever had. Because people are standing in the aisles anyways. Who cares where your seat is? You know, um, and Dave could have gone and been an usher and gone for free. And he was like, ah, I'll go the next night or whatever. And so he didn't go. And his, his roommate got home at like 1 a.m. And he was like, how was the show? It was great. They encored with Darkstar. And he was like, yeah, OK, sure they did. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, then he heard the tape the next day and was like, no fucking way. They encored with Darkstar. <laughs> so oh, poor, poor Dave missed a, a legendary show. And I, I think that this is truly a legendary show. 
my questions about Scarlet Touch Fire aside, I do think that I am definitively in the minority there. And I also think, like I said, your appreciation of it is the right way to think about it. And it is the Jim in Maryland way to think about it, right? Of don't yeah, focus on the warts. warts, but yeah. yeah, focus on what an interesting thing this is. And like, isn't it cool that they gave it a shot? And for that, I totally agree. Why the hell not give it a shot? And I, I think that um, it is absolutely worth it. Um, even if I can see why it maybe has not been released yet. Maybe it's not worthy of that official release. But I could see I it. I could see this weekend of shows, all three nights, being released in an upcoming box set. We've had a couple monster box sets in a row. And I feel like we're due for a shorter one. Where like um, the Giant Stadium box or the RFK box where it's just three shows. And it's a smaller box that costs like 100 bucks. Easier entry point for people who don't want to spend two or $300 on a box set, um, which is valid, of course. And if they were going to do that, I could totally see these three shows being um, good candidates. And you could see, it, I think this would be the, the show that would be the breakout that would be on, on streaming platforms and stuff because right. of the Scarlet Touch Fire and because of the um, Dark Star Encore. I think this is the one that they would try to spread far and wide. Like how they landed that plane so well with the Dark Star Encore. Let's land the plane here. Let's start to wrap it up. But before we do, what song are you taken with from this show? And I mean, I have a prediction, but <laughs> why is it the Dark Star Encore? <laughs> because it's the only Dark Star Encore. That 1981 New Year's Eve one, you can call it an encore, but like I said, it's part of a five song encore. That's a set of music. That is not a one-off, they come out, start playing Dark Star, end Dark Star, and walk off the stage. And for that reason, and for how good of a performance it is, it's it's got to be the Dark Star. And I'm going to assume that you're taking the same. Yes, is the answer to your question. I am also taking the Dark Star Encore. I loved every moment of it, and I'm going to take it too. And then to give a little variety in here um, to talk about like a backup song um, for me, if I had to give like a silver medal, um, I don't know that we spent enough time talking about it, but that loser up in set one, I just, I, I really, really enjoyed that. Nice. Yeah. I, I a worthy um, medalist. I'm trying to think about what my second place would have been. Which is not a normal part of our exercise, but when we agree and have the same song, yeah, it's worth it's giving nice another one a shout out. For sure. Um, I don't know. I might take the fire on the mountain, honestly, despite all of my disparagement <laughs> of Scarlet Touch Fire. I'm looking at the rest of the songs. I'm thinking about which ones whoa, did I, whoa, whoa. which ones did I enjoy more than that? Well, I mean, but the interesting thing is anytime I've ever taken Scarlet or Fire, it's been like, I got to have both. And this is one I, I don't feel like I need both. I, the, just the fire alone would be pretty good. The Hell in a Bucket was pretty good. I'd be okay with that one. Uh, I think probably one of those two would be would be one, the other one that I would take. If you had to take one song from the Scarlet Touch Fire Suite, which one would you take? I would take the Scarlet because I think the novelty of like you think you're in fire, but then you know the next song is Touch. I think that would that would uh, ring with me. And then also, I mean, just the the jam around the six minute mark of the Scarlet. I just I was really digging that. Um, so I would take the Scarlet, the lead off. Dave, nice job educating me about uh, July 13th, 1984. I'm glad that we picked this this show. Uh, definitely, definitely worth it. 
And um, I'm excited to join you again in a couple weeks. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Working Man's Pod. Follow us on Instagram at Working Man's underscore pod. Send us an email, workingmanspod at gmail.com. You know, whatever you want to do to get in touch, we'd love to hear from you. Um, and thank you for for coming along this this journey with us. Anything else, Dave? Nothing else. Would you like to do the honors? Absolutely. On that note, we will bid you good night. Good night. That's it. That's it. You got it.